It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Uh, this is a phrase that maybe some of you have heard and maybe some of you have even used this phrase. Um, but just because of the way I think I see the world, I've always struggled with this phrase and people using it because it seems like it says, um, I'm going to do what I wanted to do anyway and just hope that nobody notices or hope that nothing goes wrong and then it'll all be okay in the end and that I won't actually have to ask for forgiveness or permission and I just get to do what I want. And so it seems to imply that what you're doing is more important than taking the time to actually get permission, um, whether it's because you're running late or because you are afraid that if you ask for permission, they'll say no. Um, so to me, this always seemed like it was steeped in selfishness. It's basically saying, well, I need to do this and I can't wait, and it doesn't matter how it affects anyone else or even breaks the rules. Now, that may be an extreme view of the phrase. It's usually not that intense, but this is basically the concept that we're looking at today, right? It's permission and forgiveness and what we're supposed to do. And so we've been seeing Jesus um, throughout the book of Mark kind of clarify what it means to be a disciple. And in this middle section where he's on the way to Jerusalem, um, he gives these three predictions of his death and what's going to happen to him. And so now we're after the second one, he was continuing to clarify what it means to be a disciple. And last week, Eddie came and he preached for us and he talked about um, how to humbly serve and how to battle sin. And so we're going to continue going through this. And over the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to see Jesus challenge some difficult areas of our lives. Um, divorce and marriage and money are coming up, and today we're going to be talking about divorce. Um, so this is one of the things where when you preach straight through a book of the Bible, you don't get to skip anything. You just preach right through, and this is what's next in our um, text today. And I understand that this can be a difficult topic, um, I feel a little bit like Jesus today. Um, <clears throat> in our passage, the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce to kind of uh, trap him, to get him to say something that he shouldn't say. And as a pastor preaching about divorce, it feels a little bit the same way, like it's going to be really hard not to offend people or say something because there's so much in this topic um, that people want to know and that people are concerned about. And we have people that are divorced and people that are remarried and all of these situations are coming together. And so, I want to say a couple of things before we get actually into the text, just to kind of help us as we do that. Um, one is we're not really going to go very far into what this week I began to call the um, marriage and divorce wormhole, um, which means once you start talking about specific situations and who can get a divorce and why you can get a divorce and can I remarry and all of these things, it just leads to one question after another and then you just end up down this wormhole and you disappear from what the text is trying to tell us. And so we're not actually going to answer a lot of those questions this morning, um, which is exactly the point this passage is trying to make, as it turns out, that we actually sometimes care more about if what we're doing is okay um, than what God actually intends for us to live out. Now, just so we can get this out of the way, if you're looking for exceptions for getting a divorce, besides what we're talking about today, you can look these up on your own. I'm going to give you the verses really quick, so if you want to read these, these are biblical exceptions to um, getting a divorce. It's 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15. This, then Romans 7, 1 through 3, if your spouse dies, 
That's that one. Then Matthew 5, 32. That's if your spouse commits adultery. And so if you're looking for exceptions, those are where you want to look. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15, Romans 7, 1 to 3, and Matthew 5, 32. Okay? There may be more, but those are the main ones. So I'm giving you those. So just saying we're not going to talk about those in the rest of the sermon. That's where you need to go for those. I also want to say that we're going to approach the topic this morning with grace and with understanding. Um, I think this will be a convicting sermon, not just for people who are divorced, but for everybody who is in the room, particularly those who are also married, but really I think for all of us. Um, This sermon, this topic, what we're talking about is not meant for people to feel shame or guilt or failure or for their situation, but to point to the one who redeems and restores everything and makes all things new. And so I hope that's where we end up um, along the way. And so we're going to read it together, and then we're going to work our way through it. So it's Mark chapter 10. Um, If you're here, it's page 897 in the Pew Bible. So if you want to turn there and read along with us, um, you can. And so we're going to read 1 through 12. And it says this, he sat out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And then the crowds converged on him again, and was, as was his custom, he taught them again. And some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? As a cultural aside, um, this comes back at the end, a wife could not ask for a divorce in the culture that we're reading about today, just wasn't a thing that you could do. So it only went one way. That's why they're asking the question this way. Um, So Jesus replied to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And this is where Jesus kind of flips it on him. He says, also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So those are the verses we're working through, and we're going to kind of see what they mean. Hopefully it's helpful. I think it will be helpful to all of us. But first, the question, kind of just a series of questions as we go through. And the first is, um, why do the Pharisees use this example? Why is this the one that they thought would trap Jesus? Because when the Pharisees or the religious leaders bring a question to Jesus, it's often not a legitimate question. It's often not even one that they don't know the answer to. But they're choosing one intentionally that will get Jesus into trouble or cause him to say something that will either violate the religious law and they can say, oh, see, we told you he was not who he said he was, or it would upset his followers who then would leave him and so they wouldn't have any influence anymore. And so this question is the same here. They ask him if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife, and this is actually something the Pharisees themselves didn't agree on. So we'll get to that in a minute. But another interesting note is the place where this happens is the region of Herod. Now, if you remember back to what Herod was up to last time we saw him, 
Um, he was beheading John the Baptist because John the Baptist did not agree with marrying his brother's wife. And so this divorce and remarriage thing, um, I guess they were thinking, hey, it worked on John the Baptist. Maybe it'll work on Jesus too. Um, so they're trying this again. So that's why they're using this example. And so now they're going to answer the question, right, what do we have permission to do? Because they asked, do we have divorce? And he says, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. And so the verses that they're referring to when they answer this question is Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 to 4. And I'm going to read those for you. This is what it says. This is what the Pharisees are thinking in their minds when they answer. Um, This is what Moses allowed us to do. It says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, He may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If, after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord." You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And so these are the verses that they're thinking about when they say, um, can I, we get divorced? Moses said we could. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Pharisees didn't agree on the grounds for divorce. They all read this passage and said, okay, it seems to be okay that you can get divorced, but they agree, disagreed on the reasons why. And so, basically, they're arguing about what qualifies as being displeasing and what does does finding something indecent about them mean. And so, essentially, in in the Pharisees, you have two camps, um, who I'm going to call the um, only cause camp and the adultery only camp. Now, the one camp is the um, any cause camp, right? So if you can get a divorce because your wife is displeasing to you, um, that's any cause, right? I didn't like the taste of my meal today, so I can divorce her because I want somebody who cooks better. That's any cause. She didn't wash my clothes, or she didn't do this, or she didn't do that. So anything, right, I don't like the way she dresses, all of those things could be any cause for divorce. So you can use that to do it. Now, that seems silly, but that's what it was. Any, it, it permits those things. The other side was adultery only. The indecent part means she has been unfaithful. She has gone outside of your marriage and has slept with somebody else and broken your vows. And so that's the only reason. So the, the Pharisees disagree, and there's those two camps. That's what they're talking about. And so part of the dr- disagreement is because if you look at the language of these verses in Deuteronomy... They don't actually speak very clearly to why you can divorce your wife, right? It just says those things. If she's displeasing, and if you found something indecent, which leaves a lot of room for interpretation. In addition to not spelling out exactly why you could get a divorce, there is also something else missing in these verses. It doesn't actually command divorce. It doesn't approve of divorce. It does not permit divorce. And it also doesn't say if divorce is right or wrong. It doesn't say any of those things in this passage in Deuteronomy. So these verses in Deuteronomy exist as a contingency, right? 
if you get divorced, this is what should happen. It was designed basically to provide protection for the woman because it prevented abuse of the system. One of the reasons you can't get remarried to the same person after you divorce her and she marries somebody else is um, when she gets married, she, you get all of this extra stuff. And so if you marry her again, then you're getting more stuff by marrying her, right? That's not really the whole we get married for love kind of thing that we're looking for. It's just, hey, I can get more stuff now. So it was to protect her. The other thing was there was actually a law that says um, if you get caught in adultery, the penalty for that was being stoned. And so this was also to protect the woman in that situation that, that they couldn't just accuse her of that and she'd be stoned. So it's to protect her. But it assumes that people are going to get divorced and it attempts essentially to regulate it for all the people that are involved. It's less of a, it's okay to do this and more of a, I know you're going to do this, so let's give you some rules to protect you. So an example of this is at my house, I have three boys, um, and there's no surprise that sometimes three boys, sometimes there's fights and arguments and those kind of things. And so we have basically rules for fighting at our house of things you can and can't do um, from the beginning. So if you're going to hit somebody or you're going to tackle somebody, whether you're our kids don't really ever get in fist fights, so we just have these just for protection. Um, also, some for Nerf guns. But um, if you're going to tackle somebody, if you're going to go after somebody, if you're going to hit somebody, um, they have to see you coming, right? No cheap shots from behind. Um, there's also no low blows. You can't hit below the belt. That's off limits. Um, for three boys, that's just not something you want happening all the time. And so there's no low blows. Um, for Nerf guns, you can't shoot anybody in the face, and you have to be like five feet away before you shoot somebody. So we have all of these rules. Ideally, yes, our kids would never fight. They would never do any of those things. But because we know this is going to happen, we have these rules to protect them in case it does. Right? It's the same situation here. God is not saying it's okay to get divorced, but he's saying, I know this is going to happen, so let me give you some rules to protect you for when it does. It's a similar situation to that. Not an it's okay, but let's protect you when it does, which leads us into the next question is why these rules for divorce were written by Moses. And we see this in verse 5. It says, Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. Right? The reason Moses wrote these laws was because of their hard hearts. That's why there were rules for it. God knew that all the people wouldn't be able to just follow his commands and to marry someone and stay faithfully married to them for their entire lives. And so he gave them rules to protect them. The Pharisees took the rules for divorce as permission. Right, Seeing it as saying, God is saying it's okay if you get a divorce, even though it doesn't actually say that. But Jesus viewed it as a concession, right? a fallback for where there was divorce and unfaithfulness. So God did not plan or intend for any marriages to end in divorce, but he knew the depth of the sin and the selfishness and the unbelief of the human heart. And he knew that we wouldn't all be able to stay married. But instead of lowering his standards and saying it's okay to get divorced, he kept the standard high, right? One man and one woman in a lifetime monogamous relationship. 
but he also gave them rules along the way to protect them in case it happened, the effects of sinfulness. And so this is a really challenging concept, I think, for us. Because I think for the most part, we all know what God's commands are. Very rarely do we hear something from Scripture, even if you're listening and you're not a believer, very rarely do you hear Christians say, hey, this is what we're supposed to do, and you're surprised by it. Right? Usually we kind of know this is what we would expect to hear from Scripture. Not just in the area of marriage and divorce, but also in the way we treat people and all of these other things. We kind of assume or understand when we hear God's commands. But I think we often decide that we can't or we aren't going to live up to God's standards. And we just want to know that what we're doing is okay. Right, and I think we do this in a lot of areas. And here's just some I thought of this week. Right, I know I shouldn't have lustful thoughts, but as long as I don't act on it, it's okay. I know I shouldn't judge others, but as long as I don't say it out loud, then it's okay. I know I shouldn't cheat on my tests, but as long as I don't get caught, it's okay. I know I shouldn't gossip, but as long as it's not hurting anybody, it's okay. I know I shouldn't lie to my parents, but as long as they don't find out, it's okay. Right? That's what it looks like to seek permission for what you're doing instead of living up to God's standards. We just want to know, is what I'm doing okay? I know it's not what God intended, but I just want to know I'm okay. It's okay for me to do this. We just want to be able to convince ourselves that it isn't a big deal. But I think it is a big deal. That's kind of why these passages are here. If we begin to dismiss God's commands and just say, well, I just can't do it. It's just the bar is too high, which we'll get to in a minute. Or it seems unattainable or out of touch, right? Nobody lives like that anymore. That's not the culture that we live in now. The Bible is sometimes irrelevant to our situation. But then how do we decide which ones to follow and which ones to let go of? And then it gets really messy, And I think it easily drifts away from actually true Christianity when you begin to do that. God's commands should be the standard for our lives. It should be what we strive for, even if we fall short, sometimes or even most of the time. And so these rules that Moses gave them were not part of God's original plan. But they were instituted later because of the hard hearts of the people. And so that's where Jesus actually goes next. He goes back to the beginning. He goes to say, okay, then if this is not God's original intention that people should get divorced, then what was God's original intention? And that's what Jesus does next to clarify. He goes all the way back to creation. And he's going to challenge us to strive to live out God's intentions. But to do that, first we need to understand what are God's intentions? What does he actually want us to do? And we see this in verses 6 through 9. And it says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, these verses probably sound very familiar. You've heard them in Genesis. You've probably heard some of them at weddings. Um, These are not unfamiliar to us. They are from Genesis and the creation account. The first one is from Genesis 1.27. It says, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God, and he created them male and female. 
So I think we're good so far. That one's pretty easy to understand. The next part is from Genesis chapter 2. So we're going to hear Adam's words in just a second. But right before this, this is what's happening. God has created all the animals. He kind of brought them before Adam. They've kind of named them and decided that all of them were good. But in that determination of seeing all the animals, it was determined right, that there was not a suitable helper, a, a suitable companion for Adam. And so God decides to solve the situation. And so what he does is he puts Adam to sleep. And then he takes a rib out of Adam, and he creates a woman from it. And then after Adam wakes up, the woman is created. God brings the woman to Adam and says, this is your helper. I have brought her to you so that you will have a suitable companion, a suitable helper. And so that's what's happening right before the verses that we hear in Genesis 2, 24. So this is Adam's response to that, of Eve being created and brought to him. He says, And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Right? This is the, the, the most literal, we were made for each other moment. Right? This is like the only couple anywhere that can literally say, she was made for me. Right? That's what Adam is experiencing in this moment. Right? And that's the reason we come together as husband and wife, is because of this moment at the beginning of creation. We come together in marriage and we become one flesh. Now, what struck me as I thought about this was, we have the, the verse that's next in Mark, right? What God has joined together, let no man separate. But what we saw in Genesis is that God separated the man to create woman, right? He took a piece of him to make her. He literally took a part. And so marriage, what I, I thought of this week, is kind of a reversal of this, right? You're taking the two and you're putting them back together as one, when Adam and Eve came together, they became one flesh, kind of a restoration of what happened in that moment. They're rejoined to become one, which kind of proves our point that only God can separate and only God can join back together. This expression that we see here of one flesh means it's united together like one person. It emphasizes the permanence of the bond and to break the bond, when it says to break the bond of one flesh, is essentially ripping a person in two. And so when Jesus is talking about divorce here, he's literally saying you're taking one person and you're ripping them in two when you do this. Now, I know we take marriage seriously in our church, but I doubt that that's what we're thinking about when we hear about divorce or we hear about relationships breaking down. I don't think we're visualizing one person being ripped in two. Right? I don't think we elevate our thinking to that thing because that's a challenging example. Our views of marriage are often less intense, they're less permanent, they're less binding. We don't quite see them that way. But the picture we get here is that marriage is not a mutual convenience, it's not just a contract, but the joining together of two people 
that not only should not be separated, they cannot be by man. Only God can do that. So those are God's intentions. That's what he intends. That when two come together, nothing separates them. They're together forever. But what does it look like? I think this is the question kind of we come to as we think through all of that is, well, I shouldn't just be asking for permission to do what I want. I should be trying to live out God's intentions. And I know that that's a high standard. But what does that actually look like? Right? In my life, what does it actually look like to live out God's intentions? And so I'm, because in Mark, what he's trying to do is to teach us how to live as disciples. That means our marriage also is built for discipleship. Our community is built for discipleship. And I think we can learn some things, no matter your situation, from these passages Right? Because we've, I think discipleship is not to be done alone. It's not a solo process. Right? We've seen all of these verses along the way of Jesus clarifying, of denying yourself, of taking up your cross, of living wholeheartedly as a follower of Christ. And it could be tempting to say, well, I can do this on my own. Or even to say, I can do this better by myself. I don't need other people slowing me down. I need other people telling me what I should and shouldn't be doing. I've got this covered. I can do this discipleship thing on my own. But growing as a disciple is not a solo journey. We need other believers. We need them for encouragement, for correction, for support, for rebuke, for comfort, comfort, for sharpening and growing our faith. We need people around us to help us grow. That's why we have the church. Right? God's design was for believers to join together in their pursuit of Jesus. The church is a people gathered. Right? The word church literally means assembly. We literally come together. It's the gathering. Right? We are not... Now, be careful with this one. We are not the church when you're alone at your house, right? You might be doing the job of the church. You might be living out what is the church, but we are the church when we are together, when we are gathered together as an assembly, right? We need others around us, and that's why we have marriage as well, for the same purpose. And I say this often. You've probably heard me say this before, and you'll hear me say it again. Um, the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. The purpose of marriage is to make you holy. That's the purpose of marriage. That's God's intention for marriage, to help you grow as a disciple, to mutually encourage one another and support one another and help each other grow. Um, one of the reasons, I think, is because when you're married to someone, you have a front row seat to their sin. You cannot hide it from somebody that you're married to, at least not for very long. So you know the real them, so you can help in ways that other people can't. Because you can sharpen them and you can help them see and confess and repent and become more like Christ. That's the real purpose of our marriage. Discipleship to be done together. Right? It's not just individual discipleship in the same house. But discipleship together as a couple or as a family or even as a church. But in all of these, it's not an individual pursuit. It's not a lone wolf kind of thing. It requires other people to walk with you to help you become better. And I think actually God's intention for marriage that we see here actually frames what we should be looking for in all of our relationships. 
right? A good friend is with me and helps me grow in holiness. If I'm single, I'm looking for someone to marry who will not only be a match for me, but also helps me grow in maturity as a Christian. If I'm in a relationship and I'm not married, that's the goal, right? To become disciples. And so if that's not happening before you get married, it's probably not going to magically start happening after you get married, right? So we see that as the framework for what we're looking for. And if you are married, right, what do you need to change in order to help one another grow in holiness, Do you need to start reading the Bible together or praying together or doing ministry together? Or what needs to happen in your relationship that you encourage one another in discipleship? Not each on your own, but together, right? Which is another challenging thing to do. And here's the challenge, the other challenge that I had in addition to just this subject matter is once you finally dig into it and say, Yes, I'm really supposed to be living up to God's intentions. That's what he desires for me. That's what he wants for me. That's what he's trying to get me to do. But I just can't do it. I can't. I'm too sinful. I'm too selfish. I want to lower the bar all the time. So what do I do? How do we acknowledge that we will all fall short but still strive for for God's intentions for us? How do we live in that tension? Do we just give up because we're all destined to fall short? Or have we already fallen short and so we just feel hopeless? I've already made too many mistakes. I'm too far gone. There's nothing I can do. Well, the answer to that is no. You don't give up. You don't think you're too far gone. But we can hope and rest in the grace and mercy of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Because marriage is not just something that we do in our culture or something that we do in our relationship. It goes much, much deeper than that. It's actually a picture of the relationship, of the covenant between Christ and his church. That's what this is meant to represent. So I want to read to you a portion of Ephesians 5. This will sound familiar also. But I think this will help us clarify of knowing what to do Because when we look at the example of Christ in the church and how he treats the church and what he has done for her, right, the church being us, then it helps us to understand how we can strive for God's intentions and what we do even if we fall short. So this is Ephesians 5, 22 through 27. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless." So we see some key things that happens with Christ in his relationship with the church in those passages. One, he is the savior to the body. He knew that we would fall short. He knew that we wouldn't always be able to live up to God's intentions. But he didn't leave us on our own or cast us out and say good luck and cast us out forever because of our failures but he sent Jesus to live among us, to be one of us, to save us from our 
failures. And to save us, he gave himself up for the church. Right? Not just his position in heaven to come to earth and live among us, but he gave his life in sacrifice for us that even though he never fell short, he always lived up to God's intentions perfectly. He instead took the punishment of a guilty person. He took the punishment for us. His death stood in the place of our death. And not just die, but he gave himself to make the church holy. Right? So that those who would believe in him, who would trust in him, and what he has done for us could be holy. That means whole, made right, restored, redeemed, perfect. Like we've never failed, like we've never fallen short, like we've never taken a shortcut. Now we've ever asked for permission to do something that was less than what God commanded us. And he did all of that in order to present the church and holy and blameless and without blemish. So that when all is said and done and we stand before God, he doesn't see someone who has fallen short. He doesn't see someone who has looked for permission for their own ways, but someone who has faithfully followed God's commands and lived out his intentions and his commands faithfully for their entire life. Right? That's what he sees when we put our trust and our hope in Christ. As he enables us, he strengthens us to be able to strive to live for God's intentions. And not just say, I just can't get there, so I'm just going to do this instead, and I hope it's okay. Can I just have permission to do this lesser thing? Right? But he presents us holy and blameless. So as we strive to live out God's intentions for us, to, to strive to do what the Bible calls us to do in all areas of our lives, yes, we will fall short. Yes, we will make mistakes. Yes, we will seek permission just to say, God, can I just do this instead? It's going to be way easier. But through Christ, who faithfully and graciously loves us, we can be made holy. We can trust. We can rest. Because the picture we get here is that Christ never divorces the church. No matter how unfaithful we are, no matter how many times we fall short, no matter how many times we do things that are indecent, he never divorces the church. He always brings them back. He always restores them. He always reconciles. That's the picture we need to see this morning is of Christ reconciling with the church forever. He doesn't run away. He doesn't leave us. He is always there redeeming and restoring and renewing us for all eternity. That's what he does. Right? That's the picture we should see of marriage, of Christ loving the church so much that he gave everything, everything for her so that we could be holy, so that we could live up to God's intentions and be made whole and complete through Christ. We pray with me this morning. God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. Um, God, I, sometimes we just want to thank you for 
Um, your word, even though it's challenging, it, it teaches us, it helps us to see, it gives us clarity um, in the midst of the, the voices of the world and what, what they say we should do and what they say is okay. Um, it gives us a, a picture of your holiness, of your intentions, in, not just in the area of, of marriage and divorce, but in all areas of our lives. So God, I, I pray that you would help us to not to settle right, to settle for lesser things or try to live um, out lesser things or ask for permission for the thing that might be easier and might be close to what you want, but not exactly what you intend or what you're calling for us to do. But God, I hope that you would help us to strive for, to reach for, to desire, to seek your intentions, to follow your commands, all of them wholeheartedly, which can seem overwhelming it seems like we're just destined for failure. But that's okay because through you, through your love, through your grace, through your mercy, through your love, through your death and resurrection, you enable us, you change us, you reconcile us, you redeem us, you make us new creations who can live that out. God, I pray that this week, that if we're, if, as we're challenged by this word of saying, I just can't, I feel like I can't do it, that we would turn to you, we would trust in you, we would give it over to you and say, God, help me, strengthen me, renew me, change my desires, give me the, the energy, the hope, the discipline that I need to follow you and to seek you so that not only I can be a better disciple, but I can help others grow in discipleship as well. Because that's really what Mark is trying to get us to see this morning, that we should be growing disciples in community with others, whether that's friends or marriages or relationships or whatever it is that we are spurring one another on to serve you well, to live out your intentions in our lives. So God, help us, strengthen us so that we can serve you well. In your name I pray, amen.